Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. It's good to be with you. I've had fun just watching kids do awesome things today. We love having kids at our church. Last service in the middle of the prayer, one stomped as loudly as possible down the stairs and then ran up. They were running a little bit late, and that's wonderful. We love that. Uh, we love just kids. I love when we get a glimpse of what real life looks like. And, and that's sort of what uh, Andrew alluded to. I think when Jesus says or refers to this idea that we need to have faith like children, it's because they just go for it. They don't have these inhibitions and there's this beauty to, to following Jesus in that way because it looks like real life. And if our church thing, us doing this church thing, us following Jesus doesn't look like real life, if it's filled with a bunch of pretending, then we're doing it totally wrong. And so, uh, yeah, we just love kids and, and love to get to be here with you. If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 16. We're going to spend a bit of time there. I have a lot of bad habits. Um, one of them is I pick a book of the Bible, and then we just kind of live there for a long time. And then we'll usually take a break because I'm like, oh, we've been there for too long. People are probably bored, so we should switch it up. And then we'll do like a topical series. But somehow in the topical series, I go back to that book. So we're in Exodus, and we have been, and we will be, and hopefully that's okay with you. I uh, was prepping for this teaching like two weeks ago, and then we had a snow day, and Nate was sick, and there was just a lot of things going on. <clears throat> and in between that time, kind of in the past, especially two to three days, I've kind of just had this this feeling, sometimes I use this word, I was compelled, I, I kind of felt like God's been speaking to me personally, that I got this whole sermon wrong, um, and all the, the notes I have here. Here's what I mean by that. I don't think I got the sermon wrong, as in the information that I'm going to give you today is incorrect. I kind of wholeheartedly believe it's right or accurate. It's a little scary to say into a microphone, but I think that's the case. Um, so it's not incorrect in that way, but I don't know that it's the right thing for this morning. And here's what I mean. What I'm primarily going to talk about today is the why behind Sabbath, why we should do Sabbath. And in all honesty, I'm going to attempt to biblically convince you that you should, and with good reason. Like, there's good reason to embrace Sabbath. What is wrong about that is, as I've really just been pressing into this this week, I feel like what Sabbath is about holistically is who invites us to do Sabbath. And so often as I follow Jesus and stumble forward in that, and I'm assuming maybe you're like me, I get so distracted by the things I'm supposed to do as a Christian or the things I get to do or shouldn't do or what I should learn. And so quickly I can move on from the simplicity and the beauty of just delighting in who God is. Like when is the last time you just reflected on the fact that God is good, that it's actually good and enjoyable to spend time with God? 
Sometimes I struggle with that. And instead I get in the rut of what it means to quote unquote follow Jesus or be Christian or or do this thing that we're doing. And so if I say anything else about Sabbath without kind of just pausing to go the only proper good whole foundation for us to do Sabbath, like the starting point for it is that the almighty, perfectly loving, good God of the universe is inviting you to spend time with him. If that's not the takeaway today, then I really messed up. So that's the takeaway for today. I was thinking about it, and I wrote on the the top of my notes here, John 3.16. I don't think I've ever taught John 3.16. I don't know that I've ever said it before. Maybe I have. Teaching and and pastoring, because it's so used often, right? And, And sort of cliche in a way, it could be viewed as that. But I was reflecting on it this morning and going, what deep beauty Like, when is the last time you reflected to go, for God so loved the world? And it's not transactional. He didn't so love the world so that you can escape hell and go to heaven. He didn't so love the world so that you could have a one-time relationship with him. He didn't so love the world so you could stop doing bad things and start doing good things. He so loved the world and gave up his only, or his only son, his life, his time, his place and position so that you could do nothing else but be with him. And the heart of Sabbath is simply about being with Jesus. And there's a bunch of other good reasons I'll talk about now. Uh, But man, if I didn't get that out, we we would miss the whole thing. So with that said, we're going to do a little bit of of what I call God math. We're going to look at some truths, very kind of basic truths about the scriptures and what we uh, can know to be true about God. And one thing we need to get rid of in our concept of Sabbath to come up with this cool equation I have. So truth number one, God loves you enough to uh, have given up his own life for you. God loves you. Truth number one. Truth number two, God made you. That's something we should reflect on on a daily basis. Like we all think about ourselves a lot because that's in our nature. We're selfish. But when we think about self, we should think about how God made us. Like he didn't just randomly decide in a moment like, poof, there you are. God designed you, and he's good at designing. He's good at the work he does. He's brilliant and creative and all-knowing and all-powerful. And with those characteristics, he made you, believe it or not. And so we should reflect on the fact that God knows what he's doing. He designed you with human needs. And so many of those needs are actually provided for in the midst of Sabbath. Truth number three God said, we'll read it today, Sabbath is a gift for you from him. And then one misconception that we need to subtract out of this equation, that Jesus took away Sabbath. If you kind of want to think more on that, we have other sermons where I've discussed that, but let me just read you this quote from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, because that sounds fancy. It says this, The incidents regarding his disciples plucking ears of grain or Jesus healing on the Sabbath were not a digression from the Sabbath law, but were rather an indication that Jesus knew the content of the commandment very well. Not only his disciples, but also the Apostle Paul and the early Jewish Christians observed the Sabbath. Jesus did not rid us of the Sabbath. What he did is he filtered the legalism out of it. The religious leaders of that day got it wrong. They actually made it about a God who was an authority and who was not also and for, first and foremost good and loving. 
But Sabbath is a gift. Now, we can turn that into something negative when we embrace it in a legalistic way, but that's not what it was. And Jesus didn't take away Sabbath because it's a gift he gave in the first place. So here's my equation again. Truth number one, God loves you enough to give up his own life for you. Plus truth number two, God made you. Plus truth number three, God said Sabbath is a good gift. Let's subtract misconception one. Jesus took away Sabbath and Landon's math says it would be very dumb to not embrace Sabbath if we take all of that into account. So that is uh, the foundation for this morning. As I was Thinking about Sabbath, I, I started to uh, think about kind of Eastern cultures and um, different things. Eventually, my mind landed in this place where I was thinking about uh, some components of Japanese culture, especially as it is related to work. And I, I read this study in the um, National Library of Medicine that discusses the, the actual scientific correlation they came up with between economics, business, and a highly stressful work culture and suicide. And I'd, I'd like to, to read it to you. Uh, this doctor said, I recently attended an international conference on affective disorders held in Tokyo and learned about the high rate of suicide in Korea and Japan. Currently, Korea has the highest annual suicide rate in the world. It is noteworthy that the increasing suicide rate is directly correlated with the annual increase in Korea's gross national product. Japan has the third highest rate of annual suicide and has witnessed a staggering 30,000 deaths per year for the past decade, related in part to the sustained economic recession. It has not been easy for these proud and tradition-based cultures to acknowledge the relationship between suicide and depression, but the enormous social and economic consequences of the deaths have fostered an unusual partnership between the government and psychiatry to confront this urgent biopsychosocial issue. When you start to see government working and creating different acts and laws to help with suicide due to overworking, you go, that's fascinating. I think that means something. And since the time that this article was written, the U.S. has surpassed Japan and suicide rate metrics. That means something, I think. There's all kinds of unhealthy things in our culture. I'm not saying our, our culture as a whole is bad. It's not actually. Culture's really good. It's God-given, and we should celebrate the good in culture, but we need to be aware of the distortions in culture because over time, as we live in a non-Christian culture, which we do, we'll develop and embrace and adopt patterns and habits that are not in line with the way of Jesus that is, is good for us. And so I'm not talking about just the obvious things like we think of sexual sins or murder or uh, theft or whatever it is, but actually like in the, the midst of the everyday stuff of life, distortions of being human the way Jesus made us to be over weeks and months and decades and careers and, and culture and social media all combining to influence us, eventually we're going to adopt unhelpful patterns. And, and what Sabbath actually is, is this really healthy and helpful tool for pattern disruption. We need patterns disrupted with that without a pretty significant sense of intentionality, there will be no disruption and we'll just continue in those patterns. We might know there's some things that aren't good or healthy for us, but without a significant tool for disruption, those patterns will not be stopped. 
Addiction would require pattern disruption. For many of us, our relationship with these things called phones require pattern disruption. Something in your finances, something in your relationships, there's lots of things that actually we pretty desperately need pattern disruption and God has given Sabbath as a tool to help with that. I love this quote. If you've been here for a while, you've heard it, but every time I hear it, it's a good reminder, so you're going to hear it again from John Mark Comer in his book, Garden City. He says, the creator God is inviting us to join him in this rhythm, this interplay of work and rest. And when we don't accept his invitation, we reap the consequences. Fatigue, burnout, anxiety, depression, busyness, starved relationships, worn down immune systems, low energy levels, anger, tension, confusion, emptiness. Then he says this, you can eat concrete, it's not sin, it's just dumb. I like that. You can skip the Sabbath, it's not sin, it's just stupid. I agree with that. I think this is one of the most meaningful things, one of the most incredible gifts that we consistently reject from an all-knowing, all-loving, perfectly powerful God. All right, let's look at the, the scriptures. Exodus chapter 16, verses one through three. Read this. The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had left the land of Egypt, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Now, for some context, it was not too long before this that they were literally crying out crying and crying out to God because they were miserable. They were literally being murdered. They were oppressed and abused and enslaved for over like 400 years. Think about the familial kind of impact of that. Fathers were not home because they had to work seven days a week laying bricks for whatever Egypt wanted. Moms had to be stressed out of their minds. Kids' identities had to be just devastated because they were nothing. And not for decades but hundreds of years. And so they cry out out of misery and God hears them. And then just months after God's miraculous power and work to not only hear them, but rescue them from slavery, here they are in the wilderness going, gosh, guys, don't you remember how great it was back there? We had pots of meat and as much bread as we wanted. Why did God do this to us? It's funny what perspective does. It's funny how quickly when God's timing isn't our timing, we can lose sight of things. But God was still working for them in the midst of all of this. We continue, verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. How's that for an answer to prayer? The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Here's what God is saying. Once again, I will be their provider. This this whole book communicates something really beautiful 
for us. When we are faithless, he is faithful. There's account after account after account in Old and New Testament of people failing and God showing up, of people rejecting him and God accepting them, of people needing salvation and grace and mercy and forgiveness and justice and God providing just that. And in this moment, after all they had witnessed, after crying out in misery, God's going, I am your provider which means something we don't like to hear. You are not your own provider. And there's some people that are amening that, and that's wonderful. And there's also a lot of you that are probably going, no, you don't know the work I've done. You don't know the skills I have. I do provide for myself. Watch what I've done. I didn't get here by my, or I, I, I did this. And the longer we live in that denial the more unfortunate consequences we face. More on that in, in a minute. Verse six, so Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, this evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Just in case you forgot, you didn't do this. You cried out and I rescued you. Not you cried out and you saved yourself. But we, like God's people in this account, are so quick to forget and to reverse the roles and think that we were the ones that did the work. This evening, you will know that it was me who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am your provider. In the morning, you will see the Lord's glory because he has heard your complaints about him. Notice this, though, and I love pointing this out, so I do it all the time. One, God hears our complaints. Two, he doesn't respond in anger. He provides. Yet so often, I feel like for many of us, we don't talk to God because we're worried how he'll respond if we complain. He's okay with it. Believe it or not, God can handle your complaints. For who are we that you complain about us, Moses and Aaron continued? The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and more than enough bread in the morning. For he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. In case they've not heard it, in case you've not heard it, in case you're still second-guessing it, the Lord hears our complaints. As Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness, and there in a cloud, the Lord's glory appeared. The Lord spoke to Moses one more time. I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am Yahweh your God. So at evening, quail came and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Moses told them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. So they had no food. They were worried about dying from starvation. And out of nowhere, God just does what? Provides. Because that's what God does. He provides. Was it in their timing? No. But God provided. Verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each person needs to eat. 
You may take two quarts per individual according to the number of people each of you has in his tent. Okay, pause and don't read ahead. Something spectacular is about to happen. I think what happens next is the second most incredible miracle in all of the scriptures, second only to the resurrection of Jesus. Yet, we never talk about it because it's deathly boring and is not actually that exciting. Like, you could read over this so many times and go, oh, this is kind of weird. Like, it's not the story you would, like, gather the kids around and go, let me tell you how great our God is. Look at what happens next. But pay attention because the details put in here are actually remarkable. So the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some a little. When they measured it by courts, the person who gathered a lot had no surplus, and the person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. That's kind of weird. Some gathered a lot, some gathered a little, but for everybody, it was this equal perfect amount. Verse 19, Moses said to them, no one is to let any of it remain until morning, but they didn't listen to Moses. Why? Because at this point, in like mere hours, though God rained bread from heaven, they are already thinking that they are their own providers. They're nervous, so they're taking matters into their own hands, and they're not listening to the one who just miraculously provided. Moses, or, or let, me, let me pause there. What, what point do you think God is making, just so we're clear? That he is the provider, they are not. All right, they're all gathering the same amount. Moses says, don't let any remain until morning. They didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and smelled. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. I think I've always assumed that Moses was angry with them because they didn't listen to God. There's kind of this spiritual leadership of sorts, and Moses is going, if you just listen to God, everything would be better. As I reread it today, I don't think that's why Moses was angry. I think it was much more simple and human. I think Moses was like, hey, you idiots, it smells bad now, and it's your fault. I think he's honestly probably just mad because of the smell. Like, it doesn't have to smell bad, and because of you, I have to breathe that now. If you would have just listened, that wouldn't have been an issue. So they, they set it aside until morning as Moses commanded. Oh, whoops, I skipped, sorry. Where am I here? Uh, but they didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and smelt. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. They gathered it every morning. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, four quarts apiece. And all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. Hold on there. For six straight days, no matter if they worked really hard and gathered a lot, no matter if they didn't work that hard and gathered a little, they all had just the right amount. And then miraculously, after the day after it smelled real bad, they get this double portion. That's weird. You would notice that. They took notice of that. So much so that they go, hey, Moses, something weird's happening. We have twice as much as we did the day before. What do we do now? Because I know you get mad when it smells bad. Moses responds, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest. 
a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. Now, they're probably confused at this point because now he's telling them to do the exact thing that he just yelled at them for doing, right? But God's doing something pretty special here. They were just supposed to not leave any till morning, to not hoard it, to not take matters into their own hands and try to be God by taking control. But now they have this miraculous double portion and God is teaching them something really special and important. So they set it aside until morning as Moses commanded. Here's the second greatest miracle in all the scriptures. And it did not smell or have any maggots in it. Now, I, I kind of say that in a funny way but I actually mean it. Think about that. Just hours, days before this, if they had too much, it went bad. The work of their hands was ruined and literally reeked. And then on the seventh day, because God has something planned for them, because he made them and he designed them and he loves them and he was healing them from the issues they had in Egypt, these patterns that had built, built in for generations, that doesn't happen. That's actually crazy. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath for the Lord. Today, you won't find any in the fields. For six days you may gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now, this might sound like God is taking away opportunity for his people there. They can't go work if they want to. Nothing will be found. This was actually a really significant gift. Again, for 400 years, they had had this pattern established that you work every day. They, they just days before, or I guess a week before, had experienced this potential fear of starvation that they were going to die from hunger. So it would be a natural inclination to want to store some food up. Yet on this day, it's not even an option because God loved them enough to say, you will rest. It was not gonna be a choice. This is important, so hear this. God has not done you that favor. You can work seven days a week. You can want seven days a week. You can worry seven days a week. And if you have worries, you can probably go find solutions to those worries. And if you have wants, you can go put in the work to achieve the things you want to achieve. And you'll probably get something out of it. And that might sound like opportunity, and it is. But it's also opportunity to lose out on this incredible gift that God has offered. It's a big point of difference in the way that they experience Sabbath at this point in time versus how we experience Sabbath, it actually takes more faith for us than it did for them, perhaps, in this moment. I love this. For six days you may gather it, but on the seventh day of the Sabbath there will be none. Verse 27, yet on the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any. We do the same. Then the Lord, and why, why do they do that? Because they're viewing themselves as their own providers, not God as their provider. Why do we endlessly, restlessly work, want, and worry? Because we don't trust God enough to stop. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? You can translate that. How long will they think I'm dumb? How long will they think that they're smarter than me? 
Though I made them, though I love them more than they love themselves, which is a lot because we're all selfish. How long will this continue? How long before they get who I am and what I have for them and that what I want for them is actually good? Verse 29, understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath, meaning it is a gift. It's not something earned. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days' worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. I think that's significant. Yet we are so prone to continue working, to not rest. The, the end of the passage here said that Sabbath is a gift. It's a gift in, in many different forms, and, and I want to talk about a few of those. The first is that Sabbath actually cultivates the best version of you. We've, we've talked as we were working through this series in Exodus that the Ten Commandments are actually modeled after vows in a wedding ceremony. God was saying that he was, in essence, marrying this people. He would be their God, and they would be his people, and he would bless them, and they would be set apart for just one another. And then there's these rules, just like vows in a marriage, that are restrictive, but in really healthy, good ways. That's what the Ten Commandments were. And Sabbath is this unique one, setting aside this day to be together. That makes sense. You have to be together if you want a good relationship. And not only being together, but setting aside a day to be healthy. At the end of the day, what I need from my wife is that she's healthy, that she can bring her best. What my wife needs from me is that I'm healthy, that I can bring my best. What our kids need is healthy mom and dad living into who God has made them to be. Sabbath actually allows that. If you're like a, a statue, Sabbath once a week is the sculptor coming to, to chip off some of the things that don't belong there, that don't look right and feel right and help, and to, to heal the parts that should be there that maybe have gotten twisted and, and kind of mal-shaped over time, a weekly pattern disruption, which is the second way that, that Sabbath is a gift. Sabbath is pattern disruption that we desperately need. Again, coming out of 400 years of slavery and abuse and oppression, they had built all kinds of unhealthy values and patterns and systems for living. We too have all kinds of unhealthy patterns and values and systems for living. And Sabbath helps heal and restore from those. It's this pattern disruption, whether it's how we handle our finances, our endless chase of the things we want, our endless worry about taking care of the things we want, or whatever it might be, relational uh, pattern disruption that's required, how we handle technology. There's a, there's a lot of different options, but Sabbath is this beautiful tool once a week to disrupt those patterns, to allow the voice of God by his spirit, by his word, by the, the church, meaning the people that are following Jesus alongside of you, to speak. And in this holy time, we will hear his voice. Next, I, I wholeheartedly believe Sabbath is a healing solution. This might sound totally crazy, but I, I wholeheartedly actually believe this. If your marriage is struggling, try Sabbath as a solution. If you're struggling in parenting, Try Sabbath as a solution. If physically you're unhealthy, 
Try Sabbath as a healing solution. What God promises is that this is a holy, set-apart time where he does miraculous things, where he meets us, where he works. And so some of God's greatest work he promises to make happen during this time. So why would we not take him up on that invitation and engage on this self-declared by God holy time for us? Yet so often we reject him. I wholeheartedly believe Sabbath is healing. And then lastly, Sabbath prevents problems. It's preventative. Before you get to the place of unhealth relationally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, Sabbath builds health. It restores your your soul and your mind and your body on a weekly basis because none of us are as tough as we think we are. Yet all of us are prone to trying to be God instead of remembering that he's the one that's trustworthy. You are not your own provider. I am not my own provider. The, the Israelites in the desert, they had a role to play. They were in partnership with God. They had to go out and gather the food. They had to cook, boil, or bake it. But they were not the provider. And no matter what we think, no matter how successful or lacking in that area that you've been, no matter how much you've accumulated or don't have, you are not your own provider. At the end of the day, you did not choose who your parents would be. You did not choose where you would be born, in what time, with which opportunities. You did not even choose your interests and skill sets, the things that come natural to you and not others. God built all of those within you. That doesn't mean you don't have a role. You do, just like they did. They had to go work, and that was good. But at the end of the day, you can look at your bank account and everything you've achieved and go, I'm not solely responsible for any of that. God was the start of all of it. And the sooner we can grab a hold of that truth and reality, the better things will go. We're sort of-ish, almost done. Uh, We've kind of talked about the why, which is just this perfectly good, loving God who's actually fun to be with, inviting us into relationship. it's the who, the why I've, I've talked about. Now kind of how, what does Sabbath look like? Uh, I quoted Comer already, but uh, he provides this really helpful framework, I think, of three W's I've already been saying. So hopefully it's easy to catch on or many of you have heard this. But a good filter for Sabbath is do not worry, do not work, and do not want. For 24 hours, once a week, whatever your 24 hours is, it doesn't have to be Sunday or Saturday, just whenever it works, all of our lives are different. Can you give up? Can you let go of working, worrying, and wanting? So if it feels like work, don't do it. If you're worried, can you trust that for 24 hours, just maybe the almighty, perfectly powerful God of the universe could handle your worries just for 24 hours? Like, could he take care of it? Because I'm guessing those worries are going to be there tomorrow if you let go of them for today, and that he'll be there to walk with you through them. And if you're wanting, the proper approach, I think, is to practice gratitude. When we find ourselves wanting something, instead of go, what have I already been given? That just for today, I can want tomorrow. Wanting's not even bad. God gives us different kinds of ambition. He's made good things and opportunities in this world. But for 24 hours, instead, I'm gonna be filled with thankfulness for what he's already done. I was thinking about this, this framework of wanting, worrying, and working, and how it ties into rest and responsibility. 
when our wants or worries are more significant than our trust in God, we will refuse to rest. So if your wants and your worries weigh on you more than the weight of God's trustworthiness in your life, you will not rest. Because at the end of the day, in your mind, he's not responsible enough to give your work, your worry, and your wants to, to let him hold those three things in his hand for 24 hours. So we do not trust him enough to let go of our wants and worries for 24 hours, and instead of rest, we work endlessly to overcome our worries and to achieve our wants, and we all pay dearly for it. Instead of embracing and accepting this good gift he's offered. Uh, real quick, as kind of an example of a Sabbath day for my family, many of you have heard this before. I don't share this as like, this is the way you should do Sabbath. But if Sabbath is new to you, it can be really foreign. It's not supposed to be this horribly boring day on the couch where you do nothing. It should be the opposite of that. In fact, I've shared this before, but I think when my son went to kindergarten or like preschool and they were learning the days of the week, they would ask him like, hey, Ellis, tell us the days of the week. And I think he'd go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Sabbath day. And they're like, what is Sabbath day? <laughs> but like Saturday and Sabbath day for us have become synonymous our kids love the Sabbath day. So if it's boring, you're doing it wrong and you need to fix that. For us, Sabbath is clearly not on Sundays because I work. It's from Friday night to, to Saturday night. That's what works for us. Um, and typically, like lately, we'll start, I shared this a few weeks ago, with like a family movie night. We'll have pizza or make pizza. Um, because then we don't have to clean too much, hopefully. And it's actually really important to have a, a fairly clean house. Otherwise, you're just worried about that, depending on kind of your, your personality. And so we'll do that. We'll try to go to sleep, get good rest. We'll start the morning. Um, it's pretty essential, which goes against Jewish customs, that we have bacon in the morning with some pastries, because that's expected now for the kids. And at some point, we'll do like a little gratitude circle, just going, hey, what are you guys thankful for this week? One thing for each of the kids. Uh, and they'll, they'll share that. And then honestly, it's really simple. We just have fun. We eat good food. We enjoy the day together because God is a God that wants us to delight. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes there's more worries than others or we're wanting things. Lately, my, my wife is really obsessed with the kitchen and wanting to change the color of the cabinets. And I will say, I think we'll still want to change the color of the cabinets tomorrow. Like, we'll still have that choice. But it's challenging. I have my own set of things that I want and that are, are hard to let go of. Uh, last week, Sat, which was kind of ironic. I was going to be teaching on this. Sabbath was a disaster. It wasn't going to happen. Our girls had soccer tournaments in, in Phoenix. Just wasn't really going to work. That's okay. It's not about the legalism of it. But if I find a pattern continuously where we can't prioritize it, that might be time to go, okay, maybe we need to make a shift. But if you miss it every now and then, it's not a big deal. Uh, but are you working to build this pattern in over time? 
I'll close with this. I have shared recently how I've been coaching this, this high school basketball team, which has been a blast that ended two weeks ago. I, I talked about this one kid who will remain unnamed because he never listens. And so I used that as a, uh, an example. But there's a kid that will be named. He's awesome. His name is Sebastian. He's a sophomore. Um, and he is hands down the most important kid on the team. Like everybody played a key role. But Sebastian's the point guard. And he has a, a set of skills that if we didn't have him playing his role, the team would fall apart. And I failed our team and I failed Sebastian often throughout the year because I would worry, honestly, rightfully so, that if I pulled Sebastian to get some rest, everything would fall apart. And often it would. And Sebastian wanted to win always. He's competitive and he is hardworking. And so he never wanted to come out. But after losing enough games and just watching this pattern, I realized that though he's an incredibly hard worker, he's a great decision maker, he has all the skill sets, some portion, in some portion of the third quarter, he will continuously make really dumb choices. And I'll be like, what are you doing? And he'll be like, I don't know. And I'm like, well, stop that. Be like, are you tired? He's like, no, coach, I'm good. I'm like, okay, good, because I can't pull you out anyway. But I started to recognize that the cost of not risking giving him rest, even though I was worried about what would happen, always cost more than pulling him, even for a minute or two, because he would have nothing left. He would make dumb choices always. And it was not his fault. It was my fault, because as a coach, I didn't manage it right. And it was partially his fault because no matter how many times I'm like, hey man, are you tired? He'd be like, no coach, I'm good. (laughs) Are you sure? Yep. Should you come out for a minute? No, I'm good. He would never, unless he was like literally dying, ask to come out of a game, which I really appreciate. But we had to collaborate together to go like, no, you gotta get this rest. And so I realized I'd have to like script out everybody's minutes for the game. And like I said, Nate was helping me coach. So I know at this mark in the third quarter, we have to pull Sebastian. But I'm stubborn in the the game and I'd start to worry. So Nate would be like, hey man, it's time to pull Sebastian. I'm like, not now, we can't do it. (laughs) That's what life is like though. Like maybe you're in a moment where it's like, not now, we can't do it. Maybe next week. We just got to get a little bit further ahead, build that leader. We just need to catch up a little bit more and then it'll be the right time to do this. It'll never be the right time. And we go, no, I'm fine. Really, I can do it. Just a little bit more. I have that in my tank. But eventually, I promise you, you will pay the price. Not because I'm smart, but because he loves you and he made you and he designed you and rest is something he made you with a need for. Because he is your provider, you are not your own provider. Uh, I'm not going to read it because we don't have time, but I was reading through Hebrews chapter 4 this week. And and in it, the author has this line. He's actually quoting the Old Testament in reference to this moment in Exodus that we just read. And he says, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I often harden my heart to the voice of God. I choose to not listen because I think I know better. And this is one of these gifts because he loves us and he's good that he offers. So I'd strongly encourage you to enter his rest. Not because it's, not only because it's good for you and right, mostly because this really good God just wants to spend time with you and be with you and I promise you'll actually enjoy it. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, I thank you for your goodness.
I thank you that you don't put a pressure on us to get everything right, to be perfect, to not make mistakes, to never stop, but instead you invite us to rest, to delight in your goodness and what we've been given, that you promise to hold our worries, our wants, our work, and that everything will still be there 24 hours from now. Give us the courage to rest because it's hard. May you lead us, Holy Spirit, in everything we do, may you lead us. The scripture talks about piercing our hearts with your word. May that happen. We look to you now. We ask to hear your voice and that you help us not harden our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, If you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember... Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.